Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henrick is Executive Director of Sisters in Crime. This week on the podcast, I'm pleased to welcome Katrina McPherson. National best-selling author Katrina McPherson was born in Scotland and lived there until emigrating in 2010. She writes historical detective stories set in the old country in the 1930s. The Turning Tide won a 2021 Lefty Award and is nominated for an Agatha. She also writes a strand of contemporary psychological thrillers, including the Edgar shortlisted The Day She Died. After eight years in the new country, Katrina kicked off the the comic Last Ditch Motel series, which takes a wry but affectionate look at California life and has won two lefties for Best Humorous Mystery. Scott on the Rocks is out now. Katrina was president of Sisters in Crime from 2014 to 2015. Welcome to the podcast, Katrina. Thank you very much for having me, Julie. So 2014 and 2015 sounds like it was yesterday, but that was a while ago now. It was, yeah, it was my promise to myself when I crawled away on my hands and knees after that three-year stint was five, nothing, say no to everything for five years. And I'm horribly aware that my time's up. (laughs) I've had that five (laughs) years. That was my... um, this is going to put anyone off from joining the national board. Thank you very much for what you do as executive director, by the way. Um, not by the way, but that's my advice to anyone going into that rolling, um, to that surf, like it's like rolling in the surf, vice president, president, past president, and then out. Then you're left spent and shaking <laughs> coming <laughs> off the board is say after the end of it, say, do say no to everything for five years and then start again. <laughs> and then start again. Yeah. Well, it's, um, you know, it is a lot of work um, to be on the national board and to be uh, in service to a, a significantly large organization. I mean, yes. it's got over 4,000 members and, uh, almost 60 chapters and uh, you know there's a lot going on but it's a wonderful organization and so yeah and you know to the people who've come after I left when I left it was 50 chapters and 3,000 members so it's it's going absolute gangbusters now yeah Wow, that is a lot yeah. in a fairly short <laughs> amount of time. All I had to do was leave. <laughs> <laughs> not true no. at all. Not true at all. Um, how did you find out about Sisters in Crime? Um, on a phone call, uh, when I first got here and we were staying in the house that we stayed in the first summer, not where I am now, and my brand new editor at St. Martin's Press um, phoned me up. We had this hilarious phone call where she said, well, you need to join SYNC and you need to join MWA and you need to go to BoucherCon in, down in San Francisco and you need to go to Malice. And the only thing I understood was San Francisco. <laughs> no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> what are these words that you've just used? Um, but she said, then she explained. And so I looked on the website and thought, yeah, I do. Absolutely, I need to join Sisters in Crime. And I remember 
dressing, like trying to choose a dress to wear to my first chapter meeting up in Sacramento, which is my local chapter, Capital Crimes. Um, and I still remember what I chose to wear. I'm driving up there, really trepidatious. Because uh, I'm not a massive joiner. Um, thinking, well, what's, what's this, what's this going to be like? And of course, it was absolutely delightful. And I, I came back and Neil, my husband, said, how'd it go? I said, oh, just, I'm good. I'm good. I'm home. I found them. Because it was very different. He had joined a faculty in a university, so he had an infrastructure and a support system. And I was just, you know, I was in the wind. Mm. And you moved here in 2010, but you, you were a published author. Yes. In the UK. Yes. So how many books had you published already? Um, seven. Is that right? Okay. Yes, seven. So two not mysteries and five in the historical series which was so timely because obviously my agent had been trying to sell books in America all the time because why would you not in this huge country of voracious readers? But luckily she added that one line and she lives in California to my bio for the Frankfurt Book Fair. But also it wasn't just that. It was that that fifth book was set in a grand house and the detective went undercover as a servant and it was just when Downton Abbey fever was beginning to take over in the US. So this book just looked perfect for the moment. It was pure, pure chance, pure fortune. No, fortune for, for all of us as Thank well. Um, but let's talk about your writing journey uh, a bit. You know, when do you remember when you thought to yourself, I want to write a book? Yeah, I was tiny. I wrote a, a um, you would call it an homage or a love letter, a rip-off, um, to Enid Blyton's fairy tales when I was when I was little. And my dad called what Wanda, Wendy the Wicked and Wanda the Wise, and one of my sisters is called Wendy. <laughs> it was completely gratuitous. It could have been Wanda the Wicked and Wendy the Wise. What can I say? What are we snot? <laughs> um, and my dad took it to work and got his secretary, you know, to type it and then got that old purple stinky machine out to crank out some copies and stapled them together. And I hand drew illustrations. I think it was about 10 pages long. Um, so that was my first book. And I've got oh, it. Wow. And I've written, I've, I've updated it for my sister, flipping the names. So it, now it is Wonder the Wicked and Wendy the Wise and her children are in it now. Um, Amy, Princess Amy and Lewis, her son, is the um, chief of staff of the palace of Fairyland, you know. So, but that was, yeah, that was, so I must have been quite wee, probably about eight when I did that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And how did you, how did, you know, oh, so you're eight and you, you wrote a book and dad used the uh, mimeograph machine, that's which it. anyone yeah, under a certain a age is going to have no idea what that was like and smelling oh, the copies yes. and... You think you've got experience. a life just smelling Sharpies. Those were the days <laughs> when the whole room smelled like one giant Sharpie. Wow. Can't have been good for us. No, I was just thinking the same thing between that and the kids who ate paste. I'm not sure how we made it past a certain age. Um, but what was your writing journey like? Like, when did you sort of start to really 
put it together and 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 you know you you mentioned that you published uh seven books when you were in the uh, uh, uk so yeah. you know we could talk about those but what was it like to sort of get it together and figure it out it was yeah it was it was again it was a moment it was a moment of um well the oprah's book club was flying high and there was a sort of a UK version, nothing like as wondrous, uh, called the Richard and Judy Book Club. And everyone was in a book club. Everyone was reading. And all of a sudden, books were being sold in supermarkets as well as bookshops. And I was working in a university, and I wasn't happy working in the university. I was working in a school of English, although I'm a linguist. But I do need to give it some credit, because there were writers there. There were, there were authors of novels in that department and poets who came as visiting professors and it was my first look sort of behind the scenes um of how it was done so I was meeting people daily who who wrote books and also book festivals literary festivals were beginning and so I was going and listening to people who wrote and and it just all of a sudden seemed possible it seemed like everyone was reading and everyone was writing and I thought well why not me well, the first thing I wrote was a, a sitcom script, actually, for a competition at the BBC. And it never oh. got made, but it, it, you see, it went into development and never made it out again. But it did go into development, and I did have some meetings, you know, at the BBC offices, which is very exciting. And that gave me a real boost. You know, like the good rejection you sometimes get. You get rejected by a publisher, yeah. but they say such nice things that it's a really positive rejection. So even this ultimately doomed radio sitcom that I had written gave me the confidence to to crack on. Mm. And what made you, so you were working in screenplays, which is a yeah. different but sort of related. I mean, you know, you learn a lot, I think, by writing plays or screenplays. But yeah, did you... Was writing a novel more something that felt better, or it was it just a different um, path because you could you can control the writing part of a book yes. more than you could control yeah very um, much so. a screenplay done. I think so because I I wanted to I wanted to not be an academic anymore. I wanted to make my living. Pause for hollow laughter. But I wanted to make my living as a writer, and the the bottleneck you know, of the funnel, funnel neck, I suppose, to be someone with a novel published is is narrow, but it's nothing like as narrow as getting something on television or even radio, which is what I was doing. I thought a medium radio sitcom it, because it's all about the language. And I thought it gives you another dimension to play with because you're playing with people's expectations of what they would see. And then you can subvert that. So I loved it. But I, I reckoned rightly, I think, at least for me, that there was more chance of having a book published than ever to have something broadcast. And you mentioned that you wrote two non-crime books. Was that, tell me about those. Are those, you know, uh, an aberration on this path? I mean, why crime fiction? Mm, yeah, they were, I mean... The first thing I wrote was getting academia out of my system, but it was more or less a, a thriller, psychological thriller. And then the the second thing I wrote was based on my PhD, 
which was in semantics, but it's not as dry as that sounds. It was a time travel keeper, um, which I really enjoyed mm-hmm. writing. But it, but it was marketed, it was sold as and published as women's fiction. And a lot of the edges were softened and a lot of the humour was taken out and a lot of the um, puzzles were taken out. So it wasn't a very happy experience. And after that happened, I did come to regret that I hadn't thought of it, that I hadn't managed to conceive of it as crime fiction and publish it as crime fiction because I think it, I don't think anything would have been smoothed off or rounded off because you were such a broad church. You know, there's everything gets written in our genre, which is why I love it. And that's why I've always stayed in crime fiction ever since because there doesn't seem to be anything that you can write that is going to make an editor say, oh, no, 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 you can't, you cannot do that in our genre. So I'm thinking about things like Sean Cosby's, S.A. Cosby's Blacktop Wasteland, which is absolutely a crime novel, but it's not a puzzle. And there are other crime novels, well, like my The Last Ditch Motel series. There is a crime, but there, but just barely. It's not the, it's not the point of them. And some of the psychological suspense, I'm thinking Claire McIntosh's uh, psychological suspense. They are thrillers, but they're not really crime fiction. Mm -hmm. I think people who don't write in the genre or people who don't read in the genre imagine that it's a straitjacket. You know that it that it you know that really constricts you. And I find quite the opposite. Well, and even with the work you've done, I mean, you've written such different um, types of books. You've got your historical series, which I'd love to talk, you know, a little bit about. But you've got your current day um, California based, and then you've got your standalones, the the um, psychological um, suspense and thrillers. But can we talk about the historical? Um, fiction that's such a that's another bigger tent because there's the historical mystery fans but historical novel fans are also even bigger than that so um and the time period that you write in the 30s are such a as you said it's just such a time that people want to know how much work is it to write a historical novel that people um you know buy into because i also know historical readers care about the details yeah they they do and and i do although i was just speaking a three-way conversation with laurie raider day who's another uh, former president of sisters in crime and kim taylor blackmore the three of us were talking together and kim taylor blackmore writes what i think of as real historical novels i mean she does so much research and reads which mill records came up i've never read a mill record uh, and she she was writing about the 1865, a very interesting year in American history, uh, but masses of research. So I don't do any research that I don't enjoy. So I pick what I'm going to write about as something that it will be fun to research. So rival department stores, a circus, you know, a hotel, something that will be and a magazine publisher. Most recently I've written uh really enjoyed researching the departments that would be and what would happen inside a girls and women's comics and magazines in the 30s. So I make life easy on myself that way. Um, and also, it's just about within living memory. 
I mean, the 30, my parents were born and sentient in the year that I'm writing about now, so I phoned them a lot. Oh, hey, Mum, yeah. can you remember, you know, when you were a wee girl and you went to the shops? Things like that. But um, but the other lucky thing for me was in between bouts of studying, I worked in a local studies department at the Central Library in Edinburgh, and so I learned what's in their collection. So I don't, I still manage not to waste a great deal of time because I know the kinds of things that it's reasonable to expect to find in a in a library of records. So, so a, um, a copyright library or a local studies library of record. Um, I know mm -hmm. what they've got, so I can I can winkle it out. That's great. That's great. And, and photographs, that's um, the big thing for me, photographs to look at old pictures of, of even just people, portraits or street scenes or, you know, anything. So what's your process like for these or for any of your novels? Do you come up with an idea and, you know, for your series, you've built your world, but, but how do you, how do you start a novel? That, yeah, that's a good question. And it's, it's, Usually the same thing. It's some little pip of an idea. It feels like a pebble in my shoe. Um, and I'll think about it when I'm walking along and sometimes talk about it to Neil, but that's all. And it goes in one ear of his and out the other. He doesn't He doesn't retain any of this and he'll never charge me with it later when the book's written, which is good. Um, so there'll be one little idea fizzing away, doing nothing, Maybe if I was a short story writer, I'd write a short story. And then I'll have another idea and they're sort of just rolling around in my head and then they touch and that's what it feels like. So, for instance, um, the like, what book will I use, for instance? Well, for instance, um, there, I've got a novel coming out called A Gingerbread House, which is psychological suspense. I mean, clue in the name, that's not going to go well, right? And the, I thought of that, you know, when you're trying to do a giveaway in a room, when we were all in rooms together, and sometimes people use birthdays, you know, where who was born in October, who was born in the second half, who was born on this day, was it morning or afternoon? And I was imagining this giveaway not being able to get down to one person and it being two people and someone standing up and turning around and seeing their identical doppelganger standing in the same room uh. who was born on the same day um, in the same place at the same time. <gasps> you know. And then I thought, well, okay, that's that's, you know, Twilight Zone. But what about if it what about if it was just some random person who then came up and said, one of them said to the other, Oh my God I can't believe it. You've got to meet my twin sister. You know, which one of them is lying? So that was the, that was the beginning of that story. I thought that would be a moment. That would be a beginning of a, an adventure, wouldn't it? Um, and then I saw a house on a property website. I saw this peculiar house that was a, an assembly rooms like Jane Austen time, but it was tiny. It was like a, it was like a fairy tale cottage. Um, very intricate filigree work on the outside and a, a ballroom and a supper room and a card room and a ladies' withdrawing room on the inside. And there it still was, slightly um, remodelled. And I decided that it wasn't going to be remodelled at all for this story. And for some reason, that the combination of that very peculiar house and this moment of um, 
to women, it was finding out that their lives weren't what they thought, that one wasn't a twin and one was when they'd always had it the other way around. Does that, I don't know, does that answer wow. your question? Yeah, it yeah. does. Uh, you know, when you're looking, when these ideas come, and I love the idea of them touching because that's, you know, that's where sparks happen. Yeah. Do you ever think, oh, I've got to write a book for my California series and come up with an idea that isn't going to work for that, but that you can use in another um, for psychological suspense? Or, or you know, are, do when you're touching those ideas, are you already putting them in a container so that they're going to work in the world that you need them to? No, the, the, the first one, they sometimes I think this is going to be an idea that's going to work in one place. So... Uh, for a modern novel called As She Left It, which started out being called Fishbowl's Puffer, which would make sense if anyone's read it. It's a very small bit of the story. Um, I wanted someone who was in a band, but not a, not a touring band, someone who played a trumpet in a band. But I didn't want it to be uh, someone someone that people went and listened to in rows. And I thought, oh, he could be... Um, incidental music for a show, so sort of a modern circus, for instance. There's live music and cymbals and, you know, horns and things like that. And I went to a circus, a little modern circus, to see if that would work. And while I was sitting there, I thought, oh, there's so many ways to die if you're in a circus. And it would be so much better in the 20s because there's no health and safety regulations. I mean, yeah. thank God for health and safety. They keep us healthy and safe, right? But back then, so many more ways to die. So he got booted. This modern trumpeter got booted out of the circus and he did tea dances instead. And the circus setting was used in the 30s for Dandy Gill. So that's happened quite a few times. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, when... You know, you were, we all develop our craft and figure things out. You know, what was both the best and the worst piece of writing advice you've ever gotten? Oh, um, the, I mean, so many pieces of good advice, but the one, one, I think the best piece of advice I've ever had, and I got it early on from a writer whose name I can't remember, but I heard it again from Charlene Harris just last weekend. Um that she was she was at an event and she she said it really well, see if I can remember, uh, to finish it. Whatever you're working on, finish it, no matter how you feel about it, finish it. Because she said anyone can start ten novels, but it takes a writer to finish one. And I thought that's perfect. So that's oh. a direct quote from Charlene Harris. Finish it, finish it. Because a lot of people, you do hear a lot of people saying, I've, I've started lots of things and then I put them aside and I've changed my mind. I think that's the best advice. Um, the worst advice, I would say, is whenever anyone says, this is how I do it, do it like me. Anyone, even if you've paid that $250 to sit in a room and have them tell you stuff for a day, which I've never done. Um that's the point when I would stop, stop listening to someone. Yeah, you got to find your way. Mm. And do you, you know, do you work on one project at a time? Do you, you know, if you're writing, uh, 
psychological suspense? Do you just work on that or do you have to, because you must be writing all the time to, yeah. to keep all these books coming out. Pretty much. I can, I can only write the first draft. If I'm writing a first draft, which I am at the moment, I'm 58,000 words into a first draft. And I can only do that. Um, well, I can only do that that's coming out of me. So there's stuff. So that you write the first draft, I write the first draft, and then I do all the research, and then I write the second draft and third draft, and maybe a fourth draft and fifth draft. So I can only do that. But then there's the stuff that doesn't come from you, that comes back from my agent sometimes and my editor and then copy editor and proofreader. I can do that because by then it, it's born. It's not mine anymore. So I can write 2,000 words of a first draft in the morning and do, you know, 50 pages of proofs in the afternoon for a different book. But I couldn't work. I, I'm glad you're nodding. I see you nodding. That you're. That I'm glad that makes sense to you because there's there's the the drafts and the edits that are of you, of your body, you know, from your belly. And then there's the stuff that's publishing, sort of publishing, but to get this thing that you have made ready to go out in the world with its hair combed. So those are two different things. They are two different things. The writing journey and the publishing journey are two completely different journeys. Oh my God, yes. I love writing. Full stop. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid. And you can't <laughs> conflate success from one to the other. I mean, you you need to find your writing, define your writing success and find your writing joy. Yeah. <clears throat> and it can't be dependent on the publishing. No, world. no, absolutely not. Because we've got no, well, those of us who don't take the plunge and, and publish independently, we have no um, control over that. And I, I, have, ne and I have never done that yet. Um, yeah, I think even when you're an independent and indie author, you still have to separate your worlds because it's a business side. Right. Of things. Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Is that it, that writing is not a business and publishing is, whether it's you publishing or whether you give your work to someone else to publish. Yeah. And on that publishing journey, um, it, is it what you expected? It was to start with. And when I lived in Scotland and I was published in London, it it was. I mean, it was a lot of lunch. And a lot of wine, and, you know, a lot of flowers and traveling down to London and, and meeting people that struck me as impossibly glamorous. Um, and, and they were, you know, they really were. It was when you had big publishers parties. It was a, an odd thing because it was a big, huge party. And we had them in the Royal Opera House and we had them in the, the Victoria and Albert Museum and things like that. And yet the people that everyone was clustered around were always the dumpiest, frumpiest, most awkward and uncomfortable looking people. The writers, you know, different from every other party where it's always the beautiful people that are in the middle. Um, so so that was, uh, but then of course everything changed. So that was sort of 2003, 2004. And then since then, everything's changed. I used to take bales of paper wrapped up in, you know, in parcels to the post office and send them off when I first started. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable when you think about it now. Yeah, um, that is, a. I mean, it's change for the better or change for 
the challenging or it's just different so you you learn to adjust? I mean, I think both inevitably. I think I think there's it's harder now. I'm glad I'm not starting now. Sorry to be um, doom laden, but I think it's harder to find someone who will stick with you and fight your corner and nurture a career now. Um, but it's easier. It's less lonely now. I mean, the the community doesn't need it. Doesn't need a train. I mean, gosh, can you imagine this last year of the pandemic before? Um, Zoom and before, um, you know, Skype even and Messenger and video chat and things, it would have been much, much tougher. So, so I think it's less, it's less lonely. It is, and community makes all the difference, oh, you know, even though it's a solitary Yeah, because effort. people understand what you're, you know, People understand that work is work, even if no one's going to say anything if you don't do it on a given day, you know. And you can you can you can complain about things that don't wouldn't appear like problems to anyone else. I mean, I, I joke about this and say there's something about sitting in a room writing stories that doesn't strike people as work, you know, <laughs> often. But for other yeah, other writers are are so precious. Yeah, so important. And what do you wish you'd known sooner on your publishing journey? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, I wish I had known that thing that I said earlier, that you don't need to listen to what someone's telling you about the process of writing just because you just because they're a successful writer, or even if you like their books. You don't, you know, you can enjoy their books, but you don't have to um, emulate their process. I wish I'd known that because I wasted a bit of time thinking, oh, a, a real writer told me to do it this way, so I better had. Hey, do you know what I really wish I'd known? This is not really, hmm, I'm not sure if this is relevant, but I wish I'd known about Anna Catherine Green. Do you know about Anna Catherine Green? You know her? I don't. This is see. This is what's so astonishing, and I only just I only just learned that she was because I've been trolling along, thinking you know that the the masculinity of American crime writing is because of the accident of Poe and Chandler and Hammett and all that lot, and the the non masculinity or much less masculine UK crime writing is because of the accident of Agatha Christie. I mean, I have expounded this theory so many times and then discover that there was this woman called Anna Catherine Green who wrote the first female detective in the 1880s. She wrote possibly the first American detective series, started way before, she was writing before Conan Doyle was writing Sherlock Holmes and she wrote, I think, 30 um, and she's not a household. She's not a household name. I wish I'd known that. I would have been even bolshier even sooner. Yeah, <laughs> I've just read her her novel, um, that affair next door, that's been brought out by um, Library of Congress Classics. Well, why is it being brought out by Library of Congress Classics? Why is it not still in the airports? It's good. It's really good. Well, I, I'll put a link to her. Um 
information yeah. in the show notes for this podcast so that more people can find out about her. Maybe we need to do a book club or something. Yeah, it's just astonishing that she's not that she's not better known um, than she is. Well, <laughs> she'd be ast- she'd be more astonishing. But I I, w- I was astonished because I felt I've been president of Sisters in Crime. I should know this name. I didn't. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Um, we need to find out these these names. Um, so what advice would you give to your younger self setting out on this journey? I, so I'm not much of a regretter. I do really I'd, I'd sort of adhere to that. don't know if adhere is the right word. But, you know, I hold to the idea that if you're happy with where you are and you think the only way to get here is the way you came, then don't, don't change it. I wrote a whole book about this, someone going back in time to change their life and making, you know, quite some mess. Um, I think to not to not worry so much, to not make such heavy weather of the decision to um, to leave and write. But then who's to say if I'd start, I'm at it again, you know, it took me maybe three or four years, very unhappy in a job to leave and get part-time work and write instead. But then I would have written a different book if my first book had come at a different time. Do you get that, Julie, that where you think, you know, when you have a really good writing day, and the, the contingency, you know, the, the, the very sort of fragile hinges of life kind of freak you out because you thought, if I'd done something else today, I would never have written that page in this book. I mean, you can tell I'm a pantser, right? This book would have been a different book. If I hadn't had such trouble last month so that this was written, then it, this, this wouldn't have been written because the only way this could have come out of me was on this day. So... Yeah. There's a magic about yeah, that there, moment there when really it all is. comes together. I mean, together. I know it's, it's our subconscious, you know, working, you know, or semi-conscious maybe, working our story maker, wherever that little story maker lives inside. So maybe I needed the five, it was only five years I stayed in academia. I mean, I was, I didn't really stick at it for very long. Maybe I needed that five years of thinking, whoa, this is awful, to still be happy that I'm a writer now. And do you write every single day? Do you, you know, do you have a process of, you know, you work on one project, you take a break or, or do you just, you, you do what needs to be done when it needs to be done? I work. So again, writing, like the writing that's coming out of me, as opposed to the, the edits and proofs and things. Um, I write five days a week um, and I don't write at the weekends unless I'm really behind or you get that kind of exit velocity where everything feels completely bulletproof. There's nothing that can go wrong. But no, I need I take the weekends off because sometimes I'm so scared and upset and disenchanted and sure that I've lost control of the story that I need to get to Friday and then go, oh, just I can stop for a couple of days and then try again. And I don't yeah. particularly enjoy every writing day. Some of that's publishing. Some of that's thinking because of, and because we've got an online community, my failure is going to be so public when I fail, (laughs) which I will, you know. But some of it's just, oh, it's, I mean, it's not hard for God's sake. Anyone that says that writing's hard, I always want to ask, what else have you tried? But it's, I mean, it does take something out of you that once you've, once you've given it, it's gone. And so you are depleted. So no five yeah, days a week. I, yeah. 
We can define hard in different ways. So <laughs> yeah. I, I do think this is, you know, this is because my sister's a psychiatric nurse. That's why I yeah, can't see no, writing start. Yes, <laughs> I hear you. I yeah. hear you for yeah. sure. Um, so what are you reading right now? Do you read when you're writing? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I write. Sorry, I was taking a glass of water there. Because I write all the time. I wouldn't. I mean, some of the reason, the reason I gave up studying English literature was in the year that I did it, I managed to not enjoy a Jane Austen novel because I wasn't reading it. I was doing it. And so I thought, mm, I'm not going to enjoy reading anymore if I do this degree. And if, if I couldn't read while I was writing, I wouldn't be a writer. I'd do something else. I don't know what. <laughs> That's a scary thought. But yeah, I read um, with very few exceptions. Like I can't read P.G. Woodhouse when I'm writing comedy because it's too infectious. Um so right now I am reading Chasing Jack, our friend Parnell Hall's final novel that he mm. finished shortly before uh, we lost him last year. So, yeah. which is as he would have wanted it. He That last picture of him going into the ICU, he was holding up a copy of Chasing Jack saying, buy my book. <laughs> That's who he was. So I'm, I'm yes. reading that Um right now and I have just read that Anna Catherine Green here's what I'm doing, I am reading my TBR shelves in alphabetical order that's why I've just read Anna Catherine Green that's been on my shelf since I think I got it I bought it at a book event a conference, I think it might have been Left Coast Crime 2020 and now I'm on Hall, Parnell Hall um, because I was stymied, I've been buying lots of books you know, clicking that buy link after online events and also just trying to support friends and, and buy books and support bookshops. And, you know, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. But I just <laughs> had complete options paralysis. So I decided one day I was going to put my, oh, I found that I'd bought two copies of the same book. That's why I put my TBR shells into alphabetical order. And then I just decided to read them in order. And it's surprisingly okay. Because it's completely random. Yeah, no, it's it's a great idea. I would just then do you not buy books in, that are written by somebody named you know that starts with D because you're on H's. I oh, know, but <laughs> yeah, but I'm going through it like a wave. So if I buy if I buy anything earlier in the alphabet than Hall, now I need to wait until I've all the way to Jim Ziskin okay. and, and back again. That's you know. smart. That's a smart well, it, way. Of it's doing working, it. and you think, well, don't don't. Don't choose it because, you know, sometimes, you know, you know, if you keep reading the flyleaf or the back cover copy of books, trying to choose your next book, that becomes so familiar. It's like food in the freezer. I think, what's her name? Sultry Cook, Nigella Lawson says, in the freezer, once you've looked at it 10 times, you feel as if you've already eaten it and you don't want it. And I was getting like that with my TBR shelves. Yeah. 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 That's absolutely true. You mentioned that you have a book coming out. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yes. It's coming in uh, in Britain and on the 25th of May, but not until the 3rd of August in the US. And it's called A Gingerbread House. Um, it's a story. It's got it's a big departure for me. It's got four voice characters. I've never done that before. So it's a story of, wow. of three women and then another one. Um, so it's not really... Which make, which would make sense. Um, and there must be something else. Oh, yes, in um, November, 
in the US, I've got the number 15 in the Dandy Gilver series that's got this magazine publisher in it. And actually, today, as we're taping this, uh, How to Write a Mystery from MWA, the other lot, has just come out. And my chapter in that is um, humour in crime fiction. So that's out today. That's great. That's great. Katrina, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast and for having this conversation. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Julie. Yeah. More information and Katrina's links will be in the show notes for this. Thank you, my friend. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.